Hey there, hello on this day number 176 in our reading plan, and I hope you're as encouraged as I am by God's Word and the way it changes us. Today we read 1 Kings 2 and 3, our fourth reading in Psalm 119, and our first reading in John 5. So let's open to 1 Kings 2. Yesterday we heard of Adonijah's almost successful bid to become the next king. The prophet Nathan's intervention saved the day. 1 Kings 2 When David was about to die, he called his son Solomon and gave him his last instructions. My time to die has come. Be confident and determined, and do what the Lord your God orders you to do. Obey all his laws and commands, as written in the law of Moses, so that wherever you go you may prosper in everything you do. If you obey him, the Lord will keep the promise he made when he told me that my descendants would rule as long as they were careful to obey his commands faithfully with all their heart and soul. There is something else. You remember what Joab did to me by killing the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether. You remember how he murdered them in time of peace, as revenge for deaths they had caused in time of war. He killed innocent men, and now I bear the responsibility for what he did, and I suffer the consequences. You know what to do. You must not let him die a natural death. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai from Gilead, and take care of them, because they were kind to me when I was fleeing from your brother Absalom. There is also Shimei, son of Gera, from the town of Bahurim in Benjamin. He cursed me bitterly that day I went to Mahanaim, but when he met me at the Jordan River, I gave him my solemn promise in the name of the Lord that I would not have him killed. But you must not let him go unpunished. You know what to do, and you must see to it that he is put to death. David died and was buried in David's city. He had been king of Israel for forty years, ruling seven years in Hebron and thirty-three years in Jerusalem. Solomon succeeded his father David as king, and his royal power was firmly established. Then Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, went to Bathsheba, who was Solomon's mother. She asked him, Is this a friendly visit? It is, he answered, and then he added, I have something to ask of you. What is it? You know that I should have become king and that everyone in Israel expected it. But it happened differently, and my brother became king because it was the Lord's will. And now I have one request to make. Please do not refuse me. What is it? 
Please ask King Solomon, I know he won't refuse you, to let me have Abishag, the young woman from Shunem, as my wife. Very well. I will speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to the king to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. The king stood up to greet his mother and bowed to her. Then he sat on his throne and had another one brought in on which she sat at his right. She said, I have a small favor to ask of you. Please do not refuse me. What is it, mother? I will not refuse you. Let your brother Adonijah have Abishag as his wife. Why do you ask me to give Abishag to him? You might as well ask me to give him the throne too. After all, he is my older brother, and Abiathar the priest and Joab are on his side. Then Solomon made a solemn promise in the Lord's name. May God strike me dead if I don't make Adonijah pay with his life for asking this. The Lord has firmly established me on the throne of my father David. He has kept his promise and given the kingdom to me and my descendants. I swear by the living Lord that Adonijah will die this very day. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, who went out and killed Adonijah. Then King Solomon said to Abiathar the priest, Go to your country home in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not have you put to death now, for you were in charge of the Lord's covenant box while you were with my father David, and you shared in all his troubles. Then Solomon dismissed Abiathar from serving as a priest of the Lord, and so made come true what the Lord had said in Shiloh about the priest Eli and his descendants. Joab heard what had happened. He had supported Adonijah, but not Absalom. So he fled to the tent of the Lord's presence and took hold of the corners of the altar. When the news reached King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent and was by the altar, Solomon sent a messenger to Joab to ask him why he had fled to the altar. Joab answered that he had fled to the Lord because he was afraid of Solomon. So King Solomon sent Benaiah to kill Joab. He went to the tent of the Lord's presence and said to Joab, The king orders you to come out. Joab answered, No, I will die here. Benaiah went back to the king and told him what Joab had said. Solomon answered, Do what Joab says, kill him and bury him. Then neither I nor any other of David's descendants will any longer be held responsible for what Joab did when he killed innocent men. The Lord will punish Joab for those murders which he committed without my father David's knowledge. Joab killed two innocent men who were better men than he, Abner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, commander of the army of Judah. The punishment for their murders will fall on Joab and on all his descendants forever. 
But the Lord will always give success to David's descendants who sit on his throne. So Benaiah went to the tent of the Lord's presence and killed Joab, and he was buried at his home in the open country. The king made Benaiah commander of the army in Joab's place, and put Zadok the priest in Abiathar's place. Then the king sent for Shimei, and said to him, Build a house for yourself here in Jerusalem. Live in it, and don't leave the city. If you ever leave and go beyond Kidron Brook, you will certainly die, and you yourself will be to blame. Shimei answered, Very well, your majesty. I will do what you say. So he lived in Jerusalem a long time. Three years later, however, two of Shimei's slaves ran away to the king of Gath, Akish, son of Maaka. When Shimei heard that they were in Gath, he saddled his donkey and went to King Akish in Gath to find his slaves. He found them and brought them back home. When Solomon heard what Shimei had done, he sent for him and said, I made you promise in the Lord's name not to leave Jerusalem, and I warned you that if you ever did, you would certainly die. Did you not agree to it and say that you would obey me? Why then have you broken your promise and disobeyed my command? You know very well all the wrong you did to my father David. The Lord will punish you for it, but he will bless me, and he will make David's kingdom secure forever. Then the king gave orders to Benaiah, who went out and killed Shimei. Solomon was now in complete control. 1 Kings 3 Solomon made an alliance with the king of Egypt by marrying his daughter. He brought her to live in David's city until he had finished building his palace, the temple, and the wall around Jerusalem. A temple had not yet been built for the Lord, and so the people were still offering sacrifices at many different altars. Solomon loved the Lord and followed the instructions of his father David, but he also slaughtered animals and offered them as sacrifices on various altars. On one occasion he went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, because that was where the most famous altar was. He had offered hundreds of burnt offerings there in the past. That night the Lord appeared to him in a dream and asked him, What would you like me to give you? Solomon answered, You always showed great love for my father David, your servant, and he was good, loyal, and honest in his relation with you. And you have continued to show him your great and constant love, by giving him a son who today rules in his place. O Lord God, you have let me succeed my father as king, even though I am very young and don't know how to rule. Here I am among the people you have chosen to be your own, a people who are so many that they cannot be counted. So give me the wisdom I need to rule your people with justice, and to know the difference between good and evil. 
Otherwise, how would I ever be able to rule this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, and so he said to him, Because you have asked for wisdom to rule justly, instead of long life for yourself or riches or for the death of your enemies, I will do what you have asked. I will give you more wisdom and understanding than anyone has ever had before or will ever have again. I will also give you what you have not asked for. All your life you will have wealth and honor, more than that of any other king. And if you obey me and keep my laws and commands, as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Solomon woke up and realized that God had spoken to him in the dream. Then he went to Jerusalem and stood in front of the Lord's covenant box and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. After that he gave a feast for all his officials. One day two prostitutes came and presented themselves before King Solomon. One of them said, Your Majesty, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a baby boy at home while she was there. Two days after my child was born, she also gave birth to a baby boy. Only the two of us were there in the house. No one else was present. Then one night she accidentally rolled over on her baby and smothered it. She got up during the night, took my son from my side while I was asleep, and carried him to her bed. Then she put the dead child in my bed. The next morning, when I woke up and was going to nurse my baby, I saw that it was dead. I looked at it more closely, and I saw that it was not my child. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead one is yours. The first woman answered back, No, the dead child is yours, and the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. Then King Solomon said, each of you claims that the living child is hers and that the dead child belongs to the other one. He sent for a sword, and when it was brought, he said, Cut the living child in two and give each woman half of it. The real mother, her heart full of love for her son, said to the king, Please, your majesty, don't kill the child, give it to her. But the other woman said, don't give it to either of us. Go on and cut it in two. Then Solomon said, Don't kill the child. Give it to the first woman. She is its real mother. When the people of Israel heard of Solomon's decision, they were all filled with deep respect for him, because they knew then that God had given him the wisdom to settle disputes fairly. And now let's turn to Psalm 119. Today we have our fourth reading in this psalm and start at verse 49. 
God is telling us how important His Word is. In yesterday's reading, I find NLT's rendering of this verse interesting. Verse 45, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Note that following God's commandments does not violate freedom. Psalm 119, starting at verse 49. Remember your promise to me, your servant. It has given me hope. Even in my suffering I was comforted, because your promise gave me life. The proud are always scornful of me, but I have not departed from your law. I remember your judgments of long ago, and they bring me comfort, O Lord. When I see the wicked breaking your law, I am filled with anger. During my brief earthly life, I compose songs about your commands. In the night I remember you, Lord, and I think about your law. I find happiness in obeying your commands. You are all I want, O Lord. I promise to obey your laws. I ask you with all my heart to have mercy on me as you have promised. I have considered my conduct, and I promise to follow your instructions. Without delay, I hurry to obey your commands. The wicked have laid a trap for me, but I do not forget your law. In the middle of the night, I wake up to praise you for your righteous judgments. I am a friend of all who serve you, of all who obey your laws. Lord, the earth is full of your constant love. Teach me your commandments. Let's turn for the first time to John 5. To me it was meaningful to read yesterday that the fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. The fields are certainly ripe, and I note with a wink and a wry smile that Jesus is talking of heavenly wages, because we missionaries don't get top wages here on earth. But we remember that Paul said, The difficulties we face on earth are nothing to be compared with the glories that await us. About the meeting between Jesus and the official, I want to give this observation. Observe how often it happens that Jesus speaks about believing in him or encourages that belief before his miracles of healing. The implication is clear. Belief is important in healing. John 5 After this, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a religious festival. 
Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool with five porches. In Hebrew, it is called Bethzatha. A large crowd of sick people were lying on the porches, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. A man was there who had been sick for thirty-eight years. Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that the man had been sick for such a long time, so he asked him, Do you want to get Do you want to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I don't have anyone here to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets there first. Footnote Some later manuscripts add verses 3b and 4, and it seems to me that this was an early footnote that made it into the text of later manuscripts. That footnote says, They were waiting for the water to move, because every now and then an angel of the Lord went down into the pool and stirred up the water. The first sick person to go into the pool after the water was stirred up was healed from whatever disease he had. End footnote. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately the man got well. He picked up his mat and started walking. The day this happened was a Sabbath, so the Jewish authorities told the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's against our law for you to carry your mat. He answered, The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who told you to do this? But the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was, for there was a crowd in that place, and Jesus had slipped away. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Listen, you are well now. So stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Then the man left and told the Jewish authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. So they began to persecute Jesus because he had done this healing on a Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My Father is always working, and I too must work. This saying made the Jewish authorities all the more determined to kill him. Not only had he broken the Sabbath law, but he had said that God was his own father and in this way had made himself equal with God. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing on his own. He does only what he sees his Father doing. What the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. He will show him even greater things to do than this, and you will all be amazed. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, in the same way the Son gives life to those he wants to. Nor does the Father himself judge anyone. He has given his Son the full right to judge so that all will honor the Son in the same way as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I am telling you the truth. 
Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life. They will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. I am telling you the truth. The time is coming, the time has already come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will come to life. Just as the Father is himself the source of life, in the same way he has made his Son to be the source of life. And he has given the Son the right to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be surprised at this. The time is coming when all will hear the voice of the Son of Man, my voice, and come out of their graves. Those who have done good will rise and live, and those who have done evil will rise and be condemned. I can do nothing on my own authority. I judge only as God tells me, so my judgment is right, because I am not trying to do what I want, but only what he who sent me wants. Once again, please join me in prayer. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, you are the source of life, and the Heavenly Father has given you the power to judge. Yet you show your humility in that you always desire to do the will of your Father and to glorify Him. Your speaking so truthfully of your right to judge could not have been called politically correct at that time and to those listeners. But talking about that was the loving thing to do as you were warning those who were judging you. Nor did you shrink back from warning people about sin. Lord, help us, because we live in an age where people refuse to hear that there will be a judgment, much less that you are the judge. So, Lord, we ask you to give us love for people, like your own love for them. Give us the ability to be truthful, just as you were truthful. Open the eyes of the people we love whom we are thinking of now, so that they may understand that you are the one who died for them, to save them from judgment and the consequences of their sin. Hi there! This is day number 178. I'm glad that you've joined me, because God's Word says in 2 Timothy 3 that the person who rightly uses God's Word will become fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. And the scriptures that will help us toward that goal today are 1 Kings 6 and 7, our sixth reading in Psalm 119, and our first reading in John 6. So, turning to 1 Kings 6, 
Yesterday we heard the incredible size and wealth of Solomon's dominion, and his wisdom in organization is evident. During his reign, Israel was prosperous as never before or afterward. Solomon contracted with King Hiram of Sidon to get the materials needed for the construction of the temple. 1 Kings 6 480 years after the people of Israel left Egypt, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the second month, the month of Ziv, Solomon began work on the temple. Inside it was ninety feet long, thirty feet wide, and forty-five feet high. The entrance room was fifteen feet deep and thirty feet wide, as wide as the sanctuary itself. The walls of the temple had openings in them, narrower on the outside than on the inside. Against the outside walls, on the sides and the back of the temple, a three-storied annex was built, each story seven and a half feet high. Each room in the lowest story was seven and a half feet wide, in the middle story nine feet wide, and in the top story ten and a half feet wide. The temple wall on each floor was thinner than on the wall below, so that the rooms could rest on the wall without having their beams built into it. The stones with which the temple was built had been prepared at the quarry, so that there was no noise made by hammers, axes, or any other iron tools as the temple was being built. The entrance to the lowest story of the annex was on the south side of the temple, with stairs leading up to the second and third stories. So King Solomon finished building the temple. He put in a ceiling made of beams and boards of cedar, the three-storied annex, each story seven and a half feet high, was built against the outside walls of the temple and was joined to them by cedar beams. The Lord said to Solomon, If you obey all my laws and commands, I will do for you what I promised your father David. I will live among my people Israel in this temple that you are building, and I will never abandon them. So Solomon finished building the temple. The inside walls were covered with cedar panels from the floor to the ceiling, and the floor was made of pine. An inner room called the Most Holy Place was built in the rear of the temple. It was thirty feet long and was partitioned off by cedar boards reaching from the floor to the ceiling. The room in front of the Most Holy Place was sixty feet long. The cedar panels were decorated with carvings of gourds and flowers. The whole interior was covered with cedar, so that the stones of the walls could not be seen. In the rear of the temple an inner room was built, where the Lord's covenant box was to be placed. This inner room was thirty feet long, thirty feet wide, and thirty feet high, all covered with pure gold. The altar was covered with cedar panels. The inside of the temple was covered with gold, and gold chains were placed across the entrance of the inner room, which was also covered with gold. 
The whole interior of the temple was covered with gold as well as the altar in the most holy place. The two winged creatures were made of olive wood and placed in the most holy place, each one fifteen feet tall. Both were of the same size and shape. Each had two wings, each wing seven and a half feet long, so that the distance from one wing tip to the other was fifteen feet. They were placed side by side in the most holy place, so that two of their outstretched wings touched each other in the middle of the room, and the other two wings touched the walls. The two winged creatures were covered with gold. The walls of the main room and of the inner room were all decorated with carved figures of winged creatures, palm trees, and flowers. Even the floor was covered with gold. A double door made of olive wood was set in place at the entrance of the most holy place. The top of the doorway was a pointed arch. The doors were decorated with carved figures of winged creatures, palm trees, and flowers. The doors, the winged creatures, and the palm trees were covered with gold. For the entrance to the main room, a rectangular doorframe of olive wood was made. There were two folding doors made of pine and decorated with carved figures of winged creatures, palm trees, and flowers, which were evenly covered with gold. An inner court was built in front of the temple, enclosed with walls which had one layer of cedar beams for every three layers of stone. The foundation of the temple was laid in the second month, the month of Ziv, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the eighth month, the month of Bul, in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, the temple was completely finished exactly as it had been planned. It had taken Solomon seven years to build it. First Kings 7 Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him thirteen years. The hall of the forest of Lebanon was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It had three rows of cedar pillars, 15 in each row, with cedar beams resting on them. The ceiling was of cedar, extending over storerooms which were supported by the pillars. On each of the two side walls there were three rows of windows. The doorways and the windows had rectangular frames, and the three rows of windows in each wall faced the opposite rows. The hall of columns was seventy-five feet long and forty-five feet wide. It had a covered porch supported by columns. The throne room, also called the Hall of Judgment, where Solomon decided cases, had cedar panels from the floor to the rafters. Solomon's own quarters, in another court behind the Hall of Judgment, were made like the other buildings. He also built the same kind of house for his wife, the daughter of the king of Egypt. All these buildings and the great court were made of fine stones from the foundations to the eaves. The stones were prepared at the quarry and cut to measure, with their inner and outer sides trimmed with saws. The foundations were made of large stones prepared at the quarry. 
some of them twelve feet long and others fifteen feet long. On top of them were other stones cut to measure and cedar beams. The palace court, the inner court of the temple, and the entrance room of the temple had walls with one layer of cedar beams for every three layers of cut stones. King Solomon sent for a man named Huram, a craftsman living in the city of Tyre, who was skilled in bronze work. His father, who was no longer living, was from Tyre, and had also been a skilled bronze craftsman. His mother was from the tribe of Naphtali. Huram was an intelligent and experienced craftsman. He accepted King Solomon's invitation to be in charge of all the bronze work. Huram cast two bronze columns, each one twenty-seven feet tall and eighteen feet in circumference, and placed them at the entrance of the temple. He also made two bronze capitals, each one seven and a half feet tall, to be placed on top of the columns. The top of each column was decorated with a design of interwoven chains and two rows of bronze pomegranates. The capitals were shaped like lilies, six feet tall, and were placed on a rounded section which was above the chain design. There were two hundred pomegranates in two rows around each capital. Huram placed these two bronze columns in front of the entrance of the temple. The one on the south side was named Jakin, and the one on the north was named Boaz. Footnote. Jakin sounds like the Hebrew for He, God, establishes. And Boaz sounds like the Hebrew for By His Strength, meaning God's Strength. The lily-shaped bronze capitals were on top of the columns. And so the work on the columns was completed. Huram made a round tank of bronze, seven and a half feet deep, fifteen feet in diameter, and forty-five feet in circumference. All around the outer edge of the rim of the tank were two rows of bronze gourds, which had been cast all in one piece with the rest of the tank. The tank rested on the backs of twelve bronze bulls that faced outward, three facing in each direction. The sides of the tank were three inches thick. Its rim was like the rim of a cup, curving outward like the petals of a lily. The tank held about ten thousand gallons. Huram also made ten bronze carts. Each was six feet long, six feet wide, and four and a half feet high. They were made of square panels which were set in frames, with the figures of lions, bulls, and winged creatures on the panels. And on the frames, above and underneath the lions and bulls, there were spiral figures in relief. Each cart had four bronze wheels with bronze axles. At the four corners were bronze supports for the basin. The supports were decorated with spiral figures in relief. There was a circular frame on top for the basin. It projected upward eighteen inches from the top of the cart and seven inches down into it. It had carvings around it. 
The wheels were 25 inches high. They were under the panels, and the axles were of one piece with the carts. The wheels were like chariot wheels. Their axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of bronze. There were four supports at the bottom corners of each cart, which were of one piece with the cart. There was a nine-inch band around the top of each cart. Its supports and the panels were of one piece with the cart. The supports and panels were decorated with figures of winged creatures, lions, and palm trees, wherever there was space for them, with spiral figures all around. This, then, is how the carts were made. They were all alike, having the same size and shape. Huram also made ten basins, one for each cart. Each basin was six feet in diameter and held two hundred gallons. He placed five of the carts on the south side of the temple and the other five on the north side. The tank he placed at the southeast corner. Huram also made pots, shovels, and bowls. He completed all the work for King Solomon for the Lord's temple. This is what he made. Two columns, two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the columns, the design of interwoven chains on each capital, the four hundred bronze pomegranates, in two rows of one hundred each around the design on each capital the ten carts, the ten basins, the tank, the twelve bulls for supporting the tank, the pots, shovels, and bowls. All this equipment for the temple, which Huram made for King Solomon, was polished bronze. The king had it all made in the foundry between Succoth and Zarathon in the Jordan Valley. Solomon did not have these bronze objects weighed, because there were too many of them, and so their weight was never determined. Solomon also had gold furnishings made for the temple, the altar, the table for the bread offered to God, the ten lampstands that stood in front of the most holy place, five on the south side and five on the north, the flowers, lamps, and tongs, the cups, lamp snuffers, bowls, dishes for incense, and the pans used for carrying live coals, and the hinges for the doors of the most holy place, and of the outer doors of the temple, all these furnishings were made of gold. When King Solomon finished all the work on the temple, he placed in the temple storerooms all the things that his father David had dedicated to the Lord the silver, gold, and other articles. Let's turn now to Psalm 119. We'll start at verse 81. God is telling us how important His Word is. Here are two favorite verses from yesterday's reading. The law that you gave means more to me than all the money in the world. And, may the proud be ashamed for falsely accusing me. As for me, I will meditate on your instructions. Psalm 119, starting at verse 81. I am worn out, Lord, waiting for you to save me. I place my trust in your word. My eyes are tired from watching for what you promised, while I ask 
when will you help me? I am as useless as a discarded wineskin, yet I have not forgotten your commands. How much longer must I wait? When will you punish those who persecute me? The proud who do not obey your law have dug pits to trap me. Your commands are all trustworthy. People persecute me with lies. Oh, help me! They have almost succeeded in killing me, but I have not neglected your commands. Because of your constant love, be good to me, so that I may obey your laws. Your word, O Lord, will last forever. It is eternal in heaven. Your faithfulness endures through all ages. You have set the earth in place, and it remains. All things remain to this day because of your command, because they are all your servants. If your law had not been the source of my joy, I would have died from my sufferings. I will never neglect your instructions, because by them you have kept me alive. I am yours. Save me. I have tried to obey your commands. The wicked are waiting to kill me, but I will meditate on your laws. I have learned that everything has limits, but your commandment is perfect. Let's turn for the first time to John 6. Yesterday in this gospel, we heard of Jesus' relationship with God, his Father, and that God has given authority to the Son to judge all mankind. The Son has also been given the authority to give life after death. Jesus talked about the various entities who witness or give testimony about himself. This is important because in Jewish law and culture, assertions needed to be supported by at least two witnesses. The witnesses who support Jesus are John the Baptist, his miracles, his teaching, and in the background, his father and Moses. John 6 after this, Jesus went across Lake Galilee, or Lake Tiberias, as it is also called. A large crowd followed him because they had seen his miracles of healing the sick. Jesus went up a hill and sat down with his disciples. The time for the Passover festival was near. Jesus looked around and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, so he asked Philip, where can we buy enough food to feed all these people? He said this to test Philip. Actually, he already knew what he would do. Philip answered, For everyone to have even a little, it would take more than two hundred silver coins to buy enough bread. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, also called Simon, said, there is a boy here who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish. 
But they will certainly not be enough for all these people. Jesus told them, Make the people sit down. There was a lot of grass there, so all the people sat down. There were about five thousand men. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks to God, and distributed it to the people who were sitting there. He did the same with the fish, and they all had as much as they wanted. When they were all full, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces left over. Let us not waste a bit. So they gathered them all and filled twelve baskets with the pieces left over from the five barley loaves which the people had eaten. Seeing this miracle that Jesus had performed, the people there said, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus knew that they were about to come and seize him in order to make him king by force. So he went off again to the hills by himself. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, and went back across the lake toward Capernaum. Night came on, and Jesus still had not come to them. By then a strong wind was blowing and stirring up the water. The disciples had rowed about three or four miles when they saw Jesus walking on the water coming near the boat, and they were terrified. Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid, it is I. Then they willingly took him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached land at the place they were heading for. Next day the crowd which had stayed on the other side of the lake realized that there had only been one boat there. They knew that Jesus had not gone in it with his disciples, but that they had left without him. Other boats, which were from Tiberias, came to the shore near the place where the crowd had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into those boats and went to Capernaum looking for him. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I am telling you the truth. You are looking for me because you ate the bread and had all you wanted, not because you understood my miracles. Do not work for food that spoils. Instead, work for the food that lasts for eternal life. This is the food which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has put his mark of approval on him. So they asked him, What can we do in order to do what God wants us to do? Jesus answered, what God wants you to do is to believe in me, the one he sent. They replied, What miracle will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, just as the scripture says. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus replied, I am telling you the truth. What Moses gave you was not the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the real bread from heaven. 
For the bread that God gives is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never be hungry. Those who believe in me will never be thirsty. Now I told you that you have seen me but will not believe. Everyone whom my Father gives me will come to me. I will never turn away anyone who comes to me, because I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose any of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them all to life on the last day. For what my Father wants is that all who see the Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them to life on the last day. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that John records how the people did not understand the spiritual meaning of your feeding the 5,000. They must have liked your food and wanted to make you king, but they missed the main point. Following you was not going to be about flashy miracles and doing outward acts. You told them that the work God wanted them to do was, paradoxically, to believe in you. Lord, we want to follow you in that way. We believe in you. Thank you for being the bread of life to us. Thank you for your promise that we will never be spiritually hungry or thirsty. And we thankfully cling to your words. Everyone whom my Father gives me will come to me, and, you said, I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. We accept that assurance, Lord. We come to you now in belief. Thank you that we have your promise that you will raise us up on the last day to eternal life. Hi there. Day number 179. First Kings 8. Our seventh reading in Psalm 119 and our second reading in John 6. Briefly, hello, and I'm glad you're back. So let's turn to 1 Kings 8. Yesterday we heard lots and lots of detail about the building of the temple. A man from Tyre, Huram, must have been an efficient and artistic technician in working with bronze casting. He corresponds to the two craftsmen who designed and constructed the first tabernacle. 1 Kings 8 Then King Solomon summoned all the leaders of the tribes and clans of Israel to come to him in Jerusalem 
in order to take the Lord's covenant box from Zion, David's city, to the temple. They all assembled during the festival of shelters in the seventh month, in the month of Ethanim. When all the leaders had gathered, the priests lifted the covenant box and carried it to the temple. The Levites and the priests also moved the tent of the Lord's presence and all its equipment to the temple. King Solomon and all the people of Israel assembled in front of the covenant box and sacrificed a large number of sheep and cattle, too many to count. Then the priests carried the covenant box into the temple and put it in the most holy place, beneath the winged creatures. Their outstretched wings covered the box and the poles it was carried by. The ends of the poles could be seen by anyone standing directly in front of the most holy place, but from nowhere else. The poles are still there today. There was nothing inside the covenant box except the two stone tablets which Moses had placed there at Mount Sinai, when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel as they were coming from Egypt. As the priests were leaving the temple, it was suddenly filled with a cloud shining with the dazzling light of the Lord's presence, and they could not go back in to perform their duties. Then Solomon prayed, You, Lord, have placed the sun in the sky, yet you have chosen to live in clouds and darkness. Now I have built a majestic temple for you, a place for you to live in forever. As the people stood there, King Solomon turned to face them, and he asked God's blessing on them. He said, Praise the Lord God of Israel. He has kept the promise he made to my father David when he told him, From the time I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen any city in all the land of Israel in which a temple should be built where I would be worshipped. But I chose you, David, to rule my people. And Solomon continued, My father David planned to build a temple for the worship of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to him, You were right in wanting to build a temple for me, but you will never build it. It is your son, your own son, who will build my temple. And now the Lord has kept his promise. I have succeeded my father as king of Israel. I have built the temple for the worship of the Lord God of Israel. I have also provided a place in the temple for the covenant box containing the stone tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Then in the presence of the people, Solomon went and stood in front of the altar, where he raised his arms and prayed, Lord God of Israel, There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You keep your covenant with your people and show them your love when they live in wholehearted obedience to you. You have kept the promise you made to my father David. Today every word has been fulfilled. And now, Lord God of Israel, I pray that you will also keep the other promise you made to my father, when you told him that there would always be one of his descendants ruling as king of Israel, provided they obeyed you as carefully as he did. 
So now, O God of Israel, let everything come true that you promised to my father David, your servant. But can you, O God, really live on earth? Not even all of heaven is large enough to hold you, so how can this temple that I have built be large enough? Lord my God, I am your servant. Listen to my prayer and grant the requests I make to you today. Watch over this temple day and night, this place where you have chosen to be worshipped. Hear me when I face this temple and pray. Hear my prayers and the prayers of your people when they face this place and pray. In your home in heaven, hear us and forgive us. When a person is accused of wronging another and is brought to your altar in this temple to take an oath that he is innocent, O Lord, listen in heaven and judge your servants. Punish the guilty one as he deserves and acquit the one who is innocent. When your people Israel are defeated by their enemies because they have sinned against you, and then when they turn to you and come to this temple, humbly praying to you for forgiveness, listen to them in heaven, forgive the sins of your people, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their ancestors. When you hold back the rain because your people have sinned against you, and then when they repent and face this temple, humbly praying to you, listen to them in heaven, Forgive the sins of the king and of the people of Israel, and teach them to do what is right. Then, O Lord, send rain on this land of yours, which you gave to your people as a permanent possession. When there is famine in the land, or an epidemic, or the crops are destroyed by scorching winds, or swarms of locusts, or when your people are attacked by their enemies, or when there is disease or sickness among them, listen to their prayers. If any of your people Israel, out of heartfelt sorrow, stretch out their hands in prayer toward this temple, hear their prayer, listen to them in your home in heaven, forgive them and help them. You alone know the thoughts of the human heart. Deal with each person as he deserves, so that your people may obey you in all the time they live in the land which you gave to our ancestors. When a foreigner who lives in a distant land hears of your fame and of the great things you have done for your people, and comes to worship you and to pray at this temple, listen to his prayer. In heaven where you live, hear him and do what he asks you to do, so that all the peoples of the world may know you and obey you as your people Israel do. Then they will know that this temple I have built is the place where you are to be worshipped. When you command your people to go into battle against their enemies, and they pray to you, Wherever they are, facing this city which you have chosen and this temple which I have built for you, listen to their prayers, hear them in heaven, and give them victory. When your people sin against you, and there is no one who does not sin, and in your anger you let their enemies defeat them and take them as prisoners to some other land, even if that land is far away, Listen to your people's prayers. 
If there, in that land, they repent and pray to you, confessing how sinful and wicked they have been, hear their prayers, O Lord. If in that land they truly and sincerely repent and pray to you as they face toward this land which you gave to our ancestors, this city which you have chosen, and this temple which I have built for you, then listen to their prayers. In your home in heaven hear them and be merciful to them. Forgive all their sins and their rebellion against you, and make their enemies treat them with kindness. They are your own people, whom you brought out of Egypt, that blazing furnace. Sovereign Lord, may you always look with favor on your people Israel and their king, and hear their prayer whenever they call to you for help. You chose them from all the peoples to be your own people, as you told them through your servant Moses when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt. After Solomon had finished praying to the Lord, he stood up in front of the altar where he had been kneeling with uplifted hands. In a loud voice he asked God's blessing on all the people assembled there. He said, Praise the Lord who has given his people peace as he promised he would. He has kept all the generous promises he made through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. May he make us obedient to him, so that we will always live as he wants us to live, keeping all the laws and commands he gave our ancestors. May the Lord our God remember at all times this prayer and these petitions I have made to him. May he always be merciful to the people of Israel and to their king according to their daily needs. And so all the nations of the world will know that the Lord alone is God. There is no other. May you, his people, always be faithful to the Lord our God, obeying all his laws and commands as you do today. Then King Solomon and all the people there offered sacrifices to the Lord. He sacrificed 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep as fellowship offerings. And so the king and all the people dedicated the temple. That same day he also consecrated the central part of the courtyard, the area in front of the temple, and then he offered there the sacrifices burned whole, the grain offerings, and the fat of the animals for the fellowship offerings. He did this because the bronze altar was too small for all these offerings. There at the temple, Solomon and all the people of Israel celebrated the festival of shelters for seven days. There was a huge crowd of people from as far away as Hamath Pass in the north and the Egyptian border in the south. On the eighth day, Solomon sent the people home. They all praised him and went home happy because of all the blessings that the Lord had given his servant David and his people Israel. And now let's turn to Psalm 119, where we will start with verse 97. Again, we are focusing on what God's Word means to us. 
A favorite verse from yesterday's portion is verse 89. Your word, O Lord, will last forever. It is eternal in heaven. Psalm 119, starting at verse 97. How I love your law. I think about it all day long. Your commandment is with me all the time and makes me wiser than my enemies. I understand more than all my teachers because I meditate on your instructions. I have greater wisdom than those who are old because I obey your commands. I have avoided all evil conduct because I want to obey your word. I have not neglected your instructions because you yourself are my teacher. How sweet is the taste of your instructions, sweeter even than honey. I gain wisdom from your laws, and so I hate all bad conduct. Your word is a lamp to guide me and a light for my path. I will keep my solemn promise to obey your just instructions. My sufferings, Lord, are terrible indeed. Keep me alive as you have promised. Accept my prayer of thanks, O Lord, and teach me your commands. I am always ready to risk my life. I have not forgotten your law. The wicked lay a trap for me, but I have not disobeyed your commands. Your commandments are my eternal possession. They are the joy of my heart. I have decided to obey your laws until the day I die. And now let's turn for the second time to John 6. There is an important play on words between Jesus and the crowd in Capernaum, which does not come out clearly in either the NLT or the GNT. It involves the word work. Observe verses 27 through 29. Do not work for food that spoils. Instead, work for the food that lasts for eternal life. Skipping a little bit, verse 28. So they asked him, What work can we do in order to do the work God wants us to do? Jesus answered, The work that God wants you to do is to believe in me, the one whom he sent. The irony in this play on words is that normally the act of believing is not considered a work. In fact, in later New Testament writings, there is a strong contrast between working for salvation versus believing for salvation. As we have said before, this is not really a contradiction. I bring this up to remind us that believing is an act of the will. It is something one can choose to do, and therefore it can be called a work. John 6, starting at verse 25. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, 
I am telling you the truth. You are looking for me because you ate the bread and had all you wanted, not because you understood my miracles. Do not work for food that spoils. Instead, work for the food that lasts for eternal life. This is the food which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has put his mark of approval on him. So they asked him, What work can we do in order to do the work God wants us to do? Jesus answered, The work God wants you to do is to believe in me, the one whom he sent. They replied, What miracle will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, just as the scripture says. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I am telling you the truth. What Moses gave you was not the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the real bread from heaven. I am that bread from heaven, because I came down from heaven to give true life to the people in this world. Sir, they asked him, Give us this bread always. Jesus responded, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never be hungry. Those who believe in me will never be thirsty. Now I told you that you have seen me, but will not believe. Everyone whom my Father gives me will come to me, and I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. Because I have come down from heaven to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose any of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them all to life on the last day. For what my Father wants is that all who see the Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them to life on the last day. The people started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they said, This man is Jesus, son of Joseph, isn't he? We know his father and mother. How then does he now say he came down from heaven? Jesus answered, Stop grumbling among yourselves. People cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me and I will raise them to life on the last day. The prophets wrote, Everyone will be taught by God. Anyone who hears the Father and learns from Him comes to me. This does not mean that anyone has seen the Father. I who have come from God am the only one who has seen the Father. I am telling you the truth. He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven is of such a kind that whoever eats it will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. The bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give so the world may live. 
This started an angry argument among them. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I, the Son of Man, am telling you the truth. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them to life on the last day. For my flesh is the real food, my blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in union with me, and I live in union with them. The living Father sent me, and because of him I live also. In the same way, whoever eats me will live because of me. This, then, is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread that your ancestors ate, but then later died. Those who eat this bread will live forever. Jesus said this as he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of his followers heard this and said, This teaching is too hard. Who can listen to it? Without being told, Jesus knew that they were grumbling about this, so he said to them, Does this make you want to give up? Suppose then that you should see me, the Son of Man, go back up to the place where I was before. What gives life is God's Spirit. Human power is of no use at all. The words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving Spirit. Yet some of you do not believe. Jesus knew from the very beginning who were the ones that would not believe and which one would betray him. And he added, This is the very reason I told you that no one among you can come to me unless the Father makes it possible for you to do so. Because of this, many of Jesus' followers turned back and would not go with him any more. So he asked the twelve disciples, And you, would you also like to leave? Peter, who was also called Simon, answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. And now we believe and know that you are the Holy One who has come from God. Jesus replied, I chose the twelve of you, didn't I? Yet one of you is a devil. He was talking about Judas, the son of Simon from the village of Carioth. For Judas, even though he was one of the twelve disciples, was going to betray him. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, now, in the light of knowing all you did and taught, we thank you that we can more easily understand your words than those who originally heard this hard teaching. We agree with Peter. Lord, to whom else could we go? You have the words that give eternal life. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came down from heaven in order to give your life for the people of this world. 
So you are, spiritually speaking, heaven-sent, life-giving bread. Lord, we might say, like the people who heard you, Give us this bread always. But we have already received this bread by choosing to believe in you. Since we have come to you, we rejoice in this evidence that before then the Father had already chosen us. We thank you for the promise that you will raise us up on the last day. And we thank you that our receiving real spiritual food and drink from you, which are in fact your own body and blood, mean that we live in union with you, and you live in union with us. Yes, Lord, live in us today.